Chapter 3 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 3. In order to comprehend this, we must take down the artistic structure of the Apollonian culture, as it were, stone by stone, till we behold the foundations on which it rests. Here we observe, first of all, the glorious Olympian figures of the gods, standing on the gables of this structure whose deeds, represented in far-shining reliefs, adorn its friezes. Though Apollo stands among them as an individual deity, side by side with others, and without claim to priority of rank, we must not suffer this fact to mislead us. The same impulse which embodied itself in Apollo has, in general, given birth to this whole Olympian world, and in this sense we may regard Apollo as the father thereof. What was the enormous need from which proceeded such an illustrious group of Olympian beings? Whosoever, with another religion in his heart, approaches these Olympians and seeks among them for moral elevation, even for sanctity, for incorporeal spiritualization, for sympathetic looks of love, will soon be obliged to turn his back on them, discouraged and disappointed. Here nothing suggests asceticism, spirituality, or duty. Here only an exuberant, even triumphant life speaks to us, in which everything existing is deified, whether good or bad. And so the spectator will perhaps stand quite bewildered before this fantastic exuberance of life, and ask himself what magic potion these madly merry men could have used for enjoying life, so that, wherever they turned their eyes, Helena, the ideal image of their own existence, quote, floating in sweet sensuality, unquote, smiled upon them. But to this spectator, already turning backwards, we must call out, quote, Depart not hence, but hear rather what Greek folk-wisdom says of this same life, which with such inexplicable cheerfulness spreads out before thee. End quote. There is an ancient story that King Midas hunted in the forest a long time for the wise Silenus, the companion of Dionysus, without capturing him. When at last he fell into his hands, the king asked what was best of all and most desirable for man. Fixed and immovable, the demon remained silent, till at last, forced by the king, he broke out with shrill laughter into these words, "'A wretched race of a day, children of chance and misery, why do ye compel me to say to you what it were most expedient for you not to hear?' What is best of all is forever beyond your reach, not to be born, not to be, to be nothing. The second best for you, however, is soon to die. How is the Olympian world of deities related to this folk wisdom? Even as the rapturous vision of the tortured martyr to his sufferings. Now the Olympian magic mountain opens, as it were, to our view and shows to us its roots. The Greek knew and felt the terrors and horrors of existence, 
to be able to live at all he had to interpose the shining dream birth of the olympian world between himself and them the excessive distrust of the titanic powers of nature the moira throning inexorably over all knowledge the vulture of the great philanthropist prometheus the terrible fate of the wise oedipus the family curse of the atridae which drove orestes to matricide in short that entire philosophy of the sylvan god with its mythical exemplars which wrought the ruin of the melancholy etruscans was again and again surmounted anew by the greeks through the artistic middle world of the olympians or at least veiled and withdrawn from sight to be able to live the greeks had from direct necessity to create these gods which process we may perhaps picture to ourselves in this manner that out of the original titan theurgy of terror the olympian theurgy of joy was evolved by slow transitions through the apollonian impulse to beauty even as roses break forth from thorny bushes how else could this so sensitive people so vehement in its desires so singularly qualified for sufferings have endured existence if it had not been exhibited to them in their gods surrounded with a higher glory the same impulse which calls art into being as the complement and consummation of existence seducing to a continuation of life caused also the olympian world to arise in which the hellenic will held up before itself a transfiguring mirror thus do the gods justify the life of man in that they themselves live it the only satisfactory theodicy existence under the bright sunshine of such gods is regarded as that which is desirable in itself and the real grief of the homeric men has reference to parting from it especially to early parting so that we might now say of them with a reversion of the selenian wisdom that quote, to die early is worst of all for them the second worst is some day to die at all End quote. if once the lamentation is heard it will ring out again of the short-lived achilles of the leaf-like change and vicissitude of the human race of the decay of the heroic age it is not unworthy of the greatest hero to long for a continuation of life ay even as a day labourer so vehemently does the will at the apollonian stage of development long for this existence so completely at one does the homeric man feel himself with it that the very lamentation becomes its song of praise here we must observe that this harmony which is so eagerly contemplated by modern man in fact this oneness of man with nature to express which schiller introduced the technical term naive is by no means such a simple naturally resulting and as it were inevitable condition which must be found at the gate of every culture leading to a paradise of man this could be believed only by an age which sought to picture to itself 
rousseau's emile also as an artist and imagined it had found in homer such an artist emile reared at nature's bosom wherever we meet with the naive in art it behooves us to recognize the highest effect of the apollonian culture which in the first place has always to overthrow some titanic empire and slay monsters and which through powerful dazzling representations and pleasurable illusions must have triumphed over a terrible depth of world contemplation and a most keen susceptibility to suffering but how seldom is the naive the complete absorption in the beauty of appearance attained and hence how inexpressibly sublime is homer who as a unit being bears the same relation to this apollonian folk culture as the unit dream artist does to the dream faculty of the people and of nature in general the homeric naivete can be comprehended only as the complete triumph of the apollonian illusion it is the same kind of illusion as nature so frequently employs to compass her ends the true goal is veiled by a phantasm we stretch out our hands for the latter while nature attains the former through our illusion in the greeks the will desired to contemplate itself in the transfiguration of the genius and the world of art in order to glorify themselves its creatures had to feel themselves worthy of glory they had to behold themselves again in a higher sphere without this consummate world of contemplation acting as an imperative or reproach such is the sphere of beauty in which as in a mirror they saw their images the olympians with this mirror of beauty the hellenic will combated its talent correlative to the artistic for suffering and for the wisdom of suffering and as a monument of its victory homer the naive artist stands before us end of chapter three recording by john van stan savannah georgia